Well, hello, church. If you would open to John chapter 18. John chapter 18, and we will begin to read in verse 15. Pick up where we left off last week. This is the Word of God. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I'm not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself, if you would jump down to verse 25. Now Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I'm not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man who whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it. And at once a rooster crowed. Father, this is a low point in redemptive history. A very, very low point uh, to see the man who you called a rock, who you would have lead not only the apostles, but your church denying you while you were entering your first trial. What a dark, dark event to study. But Lord, we know you take things that are very tragic and even evil and sinful and you use them for good. And so, Father, we pray that you would use this denial of Peter to help us. Lord, you may have numerous ways you want to help us, and so we leave it to you how you might help us through this. But we just ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come and be our teacher, and that you would even conform us more to the image of Christ and through the Word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we pick up where we left off. Uh, let me say something quickly before we jump into this, because um, you'll notice I jumped over a section there, verse 19 to 24. Um, what is happening structurally here from verse 15 to 27 is kind of interesting. You have Jesus' trial, at least his first one uh, of six. We'll, we'll get into each of those. Um, the first trial of six, and then you have Peter's trial a different type of trial by a fire pit, um, but they're both trials. And so what John is actually doing, our author here, is going back and forth between both trials. Peter's trial and denial, and Christ's trial. Peter's denial, Christ's trial. And he's, and he's going back and forth because these things are happening simultaneously. And it's very sobering to read it all together. 
But I thought rather than try to preach both of those together, let's take them one week at a time. So I want to start with Peter. And maybe the first thing to notice about Peter right off the gate is this is his worst moment. This is his sin. Um, This is such terrible sin that some scholars have actually debated whether Peter was even a disciple if he wasn't a false disciple. And I'll I'll name one. There aren't tons that have this view, but a man named Robert Gundry is one. He was a New Testament or is a New Testament Greek professor at Westmont College and wrote a book recently trying to argue that Matthew, the uh, Apostle Matthew, actually didn't believe that Peter was a true disciple uh, because there was so much sin. And so he says not only is Judas a false disciple, but so is Peter. I don't think he argues that convincingly. I don't think there's good uh, New Testament warrant for that. I think it's quite clear when you get to John 20, when you get to the book of Acts, when you look at the totality of Peter's life after this moment, he was a disciple. And not just a disciple, he was a very godly, uh, grew into a very godly man and fruitful man for the church. Um, We know even tradition tells us that he was uh, crucified upside down and uh, me and Priscilla were talking about that. I think that's if that did happen, which it probably did, it was probably his request to be crucified upside down rather than crucified like Christ because he didn't see himself worthy. This man um, was a believer. Now, um, I think when we look at him, there's two things right off the bat that we can get from him. Uh, one, we can learn something about ourselves. I think when we study Peter, we should recognize, I could have done this. This could be me. We should see that about ourselves in Peter. And then we should also see something about Christ. Namely, Christ wasn't done with him after this moment. There was grace for Peter. And, and we must get to that point as well. So here, here's what I want to argue today. This is kind of my, my thesis and, and main point. You must fail. As Peter failed, you must fail. Um, I argue that for two reasons. One, Peter had to fail. Historically, it had to happen. We'll, We'll see that in just a moment. This terrible moment in Peter's life had to happen. And I want to apply that to us. In fact, I think I'm not actually doing justice to the text or handling faithfully what has been preserved for us unless we bring this to our lives. I don't think we can just leave it as a historical moment for Peter only. I think this must reach to us. Every commentator you read on this, uh, all throughout church history, the application is made to the other disciples besides just Peter when you're studying this. And so I, I think we have to go there. But let me be clear, Peter failed because Peter needed to fail. He needed to see that about himself. But let's be equally clear that Peter Peter failed for our benefit. Because in his failure, we learn we also must fail. Now, i got to say, some of y'all are probably thinking, are you sure that's what we're supposed to get from this? Because maybe we could look at Peter and say, this is how not to do it, right? This is is an example of what we're not supposed to do. Should we really try to imitate Peter? And I'm not saying we try to. I'm saying it's inevitable. We will. 
You can't stop it. You're going to sin. You're going to have a terrible moment that's you would never want your name to be associated with that moment. You will have that. You can't avoid that. Um, you, you will fail. And what we need to see is if Peter failed, so could you. Uh, if Peter failed, so will you. And if I could be so bold as to say, if Peter failed, so must you. And that must, I'm using extremely intentional. I'm not accidentally saying the word must. That's a heavy, weighty word, um, and, and I, I'm not just throwing it out there. And what I'm not meaning by must is that it's okay to sin. That's, that's not at all what I'm, I'm trying to say. Romans 6, 1 is very clear. Uh, Paul says, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. All right, so, so never should, uh, should we intentionally sin so that God gives more grace to us. By no means, right? That, that is not at all the heart of a Christian. That is not at all what Scripture teaches. Um, it, in fact, Paul follows that by saying, how can we who died to sin still live in it? So we know as Christians, even on our best days, even in our best efforts, we will fail. We hate that about ourselves, but it happens. However, Paul is very clear, we can't continue in sin, he says in Romans 6. How can we who died to sin still, keyword, live in it? You can't, is his point. So while we still fail, we cannot live in those failures. We cannot remain and continue in those failures. All Christians will have moments of weakness and failure, like Peter, but we don't live in those. We don't continue in those as Peter didn't. And here's another verse, 1 John 3, 9 says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed or spirit abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning. Cannot. Because he's been born of God. So we cannot avoid sin, but we will not and do not as Christians live in sin as an unrepentant style of life. The Bible emphatically says that is not true. Peter is an example of that truth. He has a terrible moment, but he doesn't live there. He fails, um, and so will we. In fact, so must we. And again, sin is not okay. Um, if you leave here and, and you think, uh, I must fail, so I guess I'll do this tonight, or I guess I'll say this, I'll just let my mouth say whatever I'm thinking, um, you, the pastor said, we must fail. Uh, if that's your heart, let me just be really clear. I don't know if you yet know Christ. That is, that is not at all the spirit of, of this passage. Um, that is not the heart of a Christian. We, we do not want to sin against the Lord who saved us. Um, and so when I say must, here's what I'm getting at kind of theologically. God didn't just permit Peter's sin. He ordained it. He didn't just permit Peter's sin. He ordained it. I'm saying that because in the upper room, a few hours before this denial, what is happening? What is Jesus saying to Peter? He's saying, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So we know Jesus knew this was coming. So the question becomes... Is Jesus looking forward into the future a few hours ahead, seeing Peter's denial and going, ah, I see it coming. Here's what's going to happen, Peter, but I just can't do anything about it. 
My hands are tied. I'd love to stop you from denying me, but I, I can't. Is that what's happening? Or is he looking a few hours into the future, seeing it and going, and I ordained it? Because it must happen. Now, a, a, another qualifier, I think we need to hear James chapter 1, 13. And make sure that we know God isn't play, doesn't play with sin. It says in, the, in James 1, 13, uh, that sin that's full grown, it brings forth death. I think what it means by full-grown sin that brings forth death is unrepentant sin and unforgiven sin. And that God doesn't tempt us towards something that brings death. So, he, so it says in that passage, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and He Himself tempts no one. Each is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So Peter sinned because Peter was lured and enticed by his own desires. Who tempted him? The devil. How do we know the devil tempted him? Because Jesus said this in Luke 22. Again, earlier that night, Luke records this in chapter 2, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned, strengthen your brothers. So Jesus didn't say this because Satan couldn't be stopped and, and what was going to happen and Peter had to happen because Jesus couldn't do anything about it. All Jesus could do is clean up the mess after it happened. Jesus said this because, uh, as Luther said, the devil is God's devil. And he only is able to do what God permits and allows him to do. Um, think about Job, right? That's, that's the primary example. Chapter 1 of Job, Satan had to come and ask permission to afflict Job. And then God allowed it for good purposes. And so when Jesus tells Peter, Satan demanded to have you that he may sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. I'm saying there's layers of causality that are important to understand. Layers of causality. So at one level, Peter's own sinful desire chose the sin because of his own sinful desires. At another level, Satan's demanding to sift Peter and God permits it. At another level, Jesus is praying for Peter's faith that it would not fail. Hence why I keep using the word fail. So whatever failure happens in a believer is never, please hear me, never ultimate and final failure. Whatever failure happens in a believer is not final and ultimate failure. Not, and, and, here's, and I can say that with such authority because the word that Jesus uses in Luke 22 is not singular, meaning just for Peter. But it, Jesus uses plural when he says your faith. He means our faith the faith of his disciples will not fail. I prayed for you that your faith would not fail. And so whatever failures happen in our lives, they're not ultimate failures. Because our faith can't fail. Because Jesus prays for our faith. 
That's massively important. So you will fail. You might fall in terrible ways. You, it, it, you, could, you must fail. Uh, but your faith won't fail. That is unbelievably uh, good news. And because that's true, I have four reasons failures are necessary. I want to put before us four reasons failures are necessary in the life of a believer. And here's the first one. Failures are necessary because they shatter our pride and self-reliance. Don't they? It happened in Peter. It happens in us. Go back to John 13, 36. Again, this is earlier that same night. Same night as the denial. Jesus says this to Peter. Peter starts and says to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus said, you will lay down your life for me. Or will, I'm sorry, will you lay down your life for me? Truly I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. So Jesus sees in Peter, I don't think with an annoyance. I know a lot of preachers mock Peter and say all kinds of things, how annoyed, you know, Jesus was at Peter. I don't think he's annoyed. I think he loves him. And he, and he has compassion for him. And he says, I love you too much to let you have that type of self-reliance. That type of pride that you don't even see. He doesn't want Peter living with the delusion that he's this sold-out, mature Christian that he's not. And so he says, when the rooster crows, you'll know who you really are. And I think that's the ultimate, if we could give an ultimate reason why God ordained Peter's failure, I would say it's that. He knows, I can't use this man to lead my church when he thinks he's this amazing. I can't do that. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. He's proud. And he doesn't even see it, which is how pride works. Especially with the most prideful people. They don't realize how prideful they are. And Peter didn't realize how prideful he was. And so Christ had to love him and say, just wait a few hours and you'll see. He had to learn that God wants to be strong in our weaknesses. Not when we try to pretend we don't have them. And so the question even for us is not, are you spiritually strong? You're not. You're not. Uh, the question is, do you realize that? And do you humble yourself before the Lord because of that? And if you don't humble yourself before the Lord... He loves you enough if you're His child to humble you for you and so that He can use you. And this wasn't the first time Jesus did this with Peter in terms of humbling him or showing him uh, who, he, who he was and his failures. We know a few minutes earlier, uh, before this moment of the denial, he tried to cut off Malchus' head, just got his ear he tried walking on water uh, maybe a year or so before this and did good for a minute, sank. He rebuked Jesus. One, one time when Jesus was saying, uh, 
this is how I'm going to die. I'm going to die like this. And then he goes, no, you're not going to die. And then he goes, you have no idea what you're talking about. Right? Just Peter, you know. And he even tried to jockey for a seat next to Jesus in the kingdom. Which, no comment, right? Just leave that one alone. Um, Proverbs says, zeal without knowledge is not good. I just think, you know, we could just put Peter's face right next to that proverb, right? This, this man is a perfect example of zeal without knowledge, lacking knowledge. And, and zeal is a good thing. Passion is very rare. It is hard. You can't produce that, right? Nobody here can just make yourself be passionate. I can't make you be passionate. The Lord's got to bring that passion. So passion is good. And I, I love what uh, Paul Washer used to say about, uh, he would say, give me one young man with passion for Christ over 10 dead Calvinists, right? Because you, you can teach a man doctrine who has passion, but you can't take someone who's dead in their orthodoxy and make them zealous for the Lord. And Peter's this guy who has zeal, but Jesus knows this is going to take a while. He's got he's to gain some wisdom and knowledge before he can be useful. And so, and here's something else, maybe a question I've been thinking on this week is, why, why does God allow us to see his chief leaders and servants fail their worst moments? I mean, this isn't like an average moment in the life of Peter. You couldn't have found anything worse that he did than this, and, it, and yet it's preserved in every gospel. Why would God do that? doesn't shine a great light on Christ's ability to disciple Peter. Um, and then look at the failure. And Peter, Peter knows, I'm supposed to be the leader of the church. I'm supposed to lead this thing when Jesus leaves. He's being told that at least. And so his failure isn't just a failure to not accomplish his dream at being a leader. This is a failure to be who Christ wanted him to be. I don't even know if we have another failure that compares in the Bible until we go back to the Old Testament and look at David, King David. There's maybe a, a parallel here with a leader who failed and we get it. You know, David is a king of Israel, same title that Christ had, and uh, a man after God's own heart. And how we can't even think about David without thinking about Bathsheba, without thinking about his worst sin being associated with him. And the same thing is true with Peter. We really don't think of Peter without thinking about this denial. And what's shocking isn't that David or that Peter sinned, or even that, that they sinned terribly. We, we all do. That's not shocking. What's shocking is that David and Peter sinned as believers, and they sinned as leaders of Christ's church and of God's people. Nobody saw that coming. Nobody saw King David as being the man who would commit adultery and then kill one of his good friends who was Bathsheba's husband. Nobody saw that coming. Nobody thought Peter, the one who's bold for Christ, who always speaks truth and says what he's thinking, even if it's not smart sometimes, nobody thought that guy is going to be the one who with his same mouth denies Christ. Nobody saw it coming. That's probably why the Lord chose these men, is because they, nobody thought they would do it. And to show us, if it could happen to them, it could happen to us. 
to illustrate for us the wisdom of 1 Corinthians 10.12, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Now, this is one thing to just read that verse. It's another thing to see it illustrated in a person's life. Anyone who thinks they stand, take heed. You're about to fall. May David and Peter always serve the church as a reminder that if David could, if Peter could, so could you. Don't overestimate your maturity. You're not as godly as you think you are. You're not as mature as you think you are. Whatever areas you think you're strong, those may be your greatest weaknesses because you think you're strong. Priscilla told me once that uh, she heard an older uh, godly woman say to a bunch of ladies in a room, um, every single woman in this room is capable of committing adultery given the right circumstances. When you hear something like that, you go, oh, well, I mean, I know I'm not perfect, but not me. Or do you hear, oh, God, please protect me from what I could do? if not guarded. Robert Murray McShane said, the seed of every sin known to man is in my heart. And we hear things, we hear things said that are not true. We hear people say, you're not your worst moments. Well, kind of are. I mean, you're not your best moments. The worst moments are part of who you are. They are part of who we are. We can't just be our best moments. We, we don't want to live that type of delusional life, do we? To just think that we're all the best things that we do? We've got to see the whole thing. As believers, we are saints, that's true. But we are saints that still sin. And we can't ignore that. And so failures happen to shatter inflated views of ourselves and to expose our self-reliance. Number two, failures should cause us to reflect on the failures that led to the failure. Okay, so there's always failures, little ones, that lead to the big one. Uh, Every counselor will tell you this if they've uh, talked with someone or counseled someone who's uh, gone through adultery that a couple doesn't have a great marriage, faithful to the Lord, all these things, and then one night just commit adultery. It's always little things first. It's always not being in the Word, not being in prayer, not seeking to live for the Lord, not probably committed to His church, probably getting very distant from each other as a couple, probably beginning be very given over to entertainment and other things. And next thing you know, adultery. But it wasn't just the adultery, was it? It was all the compromises before. And this is just how it works. Big failures are always the inevitable outcome of smaller compromises. I was David. That was Peter. King David, let's think about him for a minute. He wasn't off doing what? What was he supposed to be doing that day? He's supposed to be with the other kings in battle. That's what 
it says. But what is he doing? He's just laying on his couch, taking a nap. Wanted that ease, wanted to enjoy some of the luxurious life that he had. Laying on the couch in the middle of the day. Those are literary clues to help us understand uh, he made some bad choices before the big one. And he could have avoided that big moment of temptation had he made some different choices. So his sin wasn't just calling Bathsheba up to the room that afternoon. His sin was being in that room in the first place. Had that been avoided, maybe none of the rest would have happened. Guys, sometimes half the battle is not even giving the devil the opportunity. There's a reason Jesus tells us, I think, daily to pray, lead me not into temptation. Lead me not into it. I don't even, Lord, I don't even want to get into the point that I'm tempted. You hear how that's even phrased? It's not just that you'll be able to stand when the temptation comes, that I won't even be led into temptation. Half the battle is not even having to fight the battle. I mean, that's a good place to be. We should ask for that. Peter should have asked for that. Remember what Jesus told him earlier that night? Pray that you what? May not enter into temptation. That's what Jesus told him in the garden moments before the denial. And what did he do? Nap time. That's same as David. Both taking a nap. Huh. Anything, anything we could learn from that? I take a nap every day, so I'm not condemning naps. I do a little 10-minute nap in the, in every afternoon. Uh, I think naps can be a good thing. But if that nap turns into a two-hour nap, not good anymore, right? Uh, there, there is excess to comforts that can lead bad places. I, I think there's a connection that we should draw here, actually, between a love for comfort and moral failings. We see it in David and in Peter. David and Peter are both seeking comfort and ease in their moment of temptation. And then additionally, look at verse 18, back in chapter 18 of John. Peter was warming himself by the fire. That's when the temptation occurred. He's, he's warming himself by the fire. One, one old preacher called it the devil's fireplace. He said, when you get beside the devil's fireplace, you put yourself in a position that you've got to lie or deny. And he's not wrong. Look at verse 25. Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, and they said to him, you also are not one of the disciples, are you? And he denied it. And he said, I'm not. Standing by the fire. You can see why G. Campbell Morgan said, if any try to get warm from fires built by God's enemies, they're in danger. So why does, why does John mention this fire? There's a few reasons. Historically, the fire reminds us this is at night, this trial, that Jesus is uh, experiencing right inside and Peter's right outside. That's happening at night and it's an illegal trial. Because you're not supposed to hold the trial at night. We'll get more to that next week. 
situationally, it shows us Peter isn't innocent. Look back at verse 15. It says, the servants and officers. Could these be the same officers that just arrested Jesus? Yes, it could. It is. It was the same men that just arrested Christ. Now he's just, you know, chit-chatting, warming his hands up at the fire with them. Wise? No. He wasn't sharing the gospel with them. He is to the point of the other gospel uh, gospels say that he's cursing to deny it. Using profanity to even say, I don't know Christ. But again, I think the thing I want us to make sure we see here is this love for comfort and ease connected to moral failure. I, I mentioned this, um, I think it was a month or two ago. We were talking about, it was in that series on the modern self, we were talking about sexual sin. And I mentioned how in the Proverbs, the father speaking to his son in Proverbs keeps connecting those two things. He keeps making connections for his son going, son, laziness, slothfulness, Adultery. Love for ease. If you don't work hard. Sexual sin. He keeps connecting those two things. It's, it's something we should know. And so these are warnings and real life examples of David and Peter that big sins are the result of many other smaller compromises. Now here's the third failure. Or the third thing to notice about failures is failures are necessary because rising produces growth. Now this gets a little more positive. Um, I think this, I didn't check this, so you know, correct me later if I get this wrong. I don't want to pass some bad information here, but it's not that important, I guess. Uh, muscle atrophy? Atrophy? Atrophy. Okay, I'm, I'm not saying that right. When you go to work out, when you go to try to build muscle and you push against gravity, you push against your body weight, that's how you build muscle, when you create resistance, right? Um, so, for example, you're not going to build a lot of muscle in a swimming pool when you're basically floating. But you build muscle if you throw 100 pounds on your back and you start squatting or running or jumping, right? Because of the resistance, the gravity, it, it, it's what grows muscle. This is the same principle how growth happens. You have to fail in order to rise back up. Failures are necessary going down and then going back up. Just failing alone isn't going to bring growth. But when you fail, which is inevitable, it really does matter how you rise and if you rise and when you rise, if you're going to grow from those failures. So many Christians, when they fall into sin, they wallow in it. They lay around in self-pity, kind of licking their wounds, thinking how horrible I am. Why did I do that? Why did I? And, and they don't rise. And those who really know the gospel and the character of God are quick to confess and to repent and forget what is behind and press on toward what is ahead. And then growth can happen. And, and there's just bad advice that we're often given about these things. Like you, you hear people wrongly say, God never gives you more than you can handle. In other words, He's never going to put something on you and then you just fall. It would be better to say, that's what He always does. <laughs> that's how He works. He always gives us more than we can handle so that we realize He is our strength. He is our strength. 
And remember the proverb that says, the righteous man falls seven times and rises again. Listen to what one commentator said about that proverb. Proverbs 24, 16. He said, it's used all throughout church history to say a righteous man may fall into serious sins, but he never loses his love for God and he rises from his fall by repenting on every occasion. He is not immune to worldly cares and losses or the insidious insidious nature of the enemy, but he never loses his trust in God and always God's providence watches over him and delivers him out of all of his afflictions. So when that passage, when that proverb said the righteous man falls seven times and rises up, that word, that number seven obviously is important. It means completeness. And so some people, the reason I'm bringing up this proverb is some people associate this with Peter. And there's actually some scholars who believe that Peter didn't just deny Christ three times, but seven times. I don't take that view. They have ways they come at that. But what they're trying to do is show that this proverb is illustrated in Peter, a righteous man who falls seven times and then rises. I think, actually, what Proverbs 24 is about is about Christ, and that Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of the righteous man who falls seven times and rises, that he takes on our failures, dies, suffers under those, and rises. He takes the full amount of our failure on himself and rises. And it's ultimately about Christ. And so believers in Christ, because of His resurrection power in us, will always rise. And here's the last thing, and this really kind of flows into my last point I want to make clear, is that failing allows for Christ's restoring grace to be applied to our lives. Failing allows for Christ's restoring grace to be applied. Um, One of the shocking things when you're studying... John, y'all know this, we've studied this now long enough to recognize that uh, he keeps comparing Peter and Judas. And you just keep seeing this comparison between Peter, Judas, Peter, Judas, and one of them is seen to be a true disciple, one a false disciple, but they look dangerously similar many times. So you'll see both Peter and Judas following Jesus three years Uh, with the disciples being washed, their feet washed that night at the table, and then uh, Peter denies Christ that night, Judas betrays him. And then they both weep after it. You're like, whoa, that looks too similar. They're both with him for the whole three years. He's washing both their feet. They're both at the table. After their sin, they both weep. That looks really similar. But one's real and one's fake. It's it's a little bit shocking. Here's what's interesting. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all mention that Peter wept bitterly. John doesn't. John doesn't mention this. Look at verse 27. Peter again denied no mention of the tears. And at once a rooster crowed. That's where it would have gone. He would have put it right there. And it really happened. I mean, Peter really did weep, but John doesn't mention it. So why doesn't John mention it? Well, God knows. I I don't know. (laughs) Uh, The the Spirit ordains these things and what bits and pieces get into which Gospels. So ultimately, that's the Holy Spirit's decision. But he is working through human authors. And, And the Apostle John 
chose not to include that detail. And I was thinking about this week, trying to figure out why the tears aren't here for John, or for Peter. Why are, the, why are there no tears? And clearly, one answer that I know I'm right about is that the tears don't really matter. Because tears don't necessarily mean someone's repentant. I think what John wants us to focus on is not the tears that could be go one way or the other since Judas had tears too. He wants us to see that Jesus predicting Peter's failure happened. So again, back to chapter 13, 38. Will you not lay down your will you lay down your life for me? Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. I think the point John wants to make is Jesus got it right. When he said Peter would deny him, Peter denied him. Guys, tears are a very dangerous thing. Emotions can be very dangerous and deceptive. Um, a lot of Christians base their whole assurance of their salvation on emotions. That's a dangerous thing to base your eternity on. It's some tears you cried or something you felt. That's very dangerous, but a lot of people do that. Uh, I did that. As a teenager, I comforted myself. Y'all know I wasn't saved as a teenager. Um, but I thought I was, and I told myself I was, because at two different youth events, I broke down at an altar when they did an invitation, and I wept loud. Other, could, other kids could hear me. And I was thinking about my sin. And so I remembered those occasions. I remembered, I cried when they had that church service. And I, I really meant I was sorry. And I gave myself assurance I was a Christian, even though I didn't care about Christ. I didn't care about His Word. I didn't want to be with His people. If you would have looked at my life as a teenager, there was no, no evidence whatsoever, no good fruit whatsoever, except for two times crying. That's about all you could look at. And I latched onto those two things as hard as I could as my assurance. Hebrews 12.17 says about Esau, he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Tears do not always reveal true repentance. Judas wept bitterly. Peter wept bitterly. It's important that John left that out and that we recognize he left it out because that's not the point. What's the point? Here's the point. Peter failed as Jesus predicted. We don't need to gloss that over. We don't need to PR, kind of spin this and make it look like he's godlier than he is. We don't need to uh, sugarcoat this or, 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 or get sympathy for Peter as, the, as though he's some sort of victim because of the hard temptation that night. Saint Peter failed. That's the point. He's a guilty sinner like us. 
And what was Jesus' response to that failure? It was very merciful. Very gracious. Man, I was, um, I was talking to a man. I don't want to share too much of this. Uh, I was talking to a man I respect a lot uh, recently. And he was telling a story. Um, well, I'm going to give, I'll, I'll give enough information so you can get it. He, he was the former headmaster of our kids' school. And he was sharing how he gets delight. He would get almost a, a delight in children being called to the office uh, for, for getting in trouble. And um, obviously not because he wanted to see them get in trouble or sin, but because he would get a chance to address their hearts with truth and try to help them grow. And, um, and, say, and so they would come and he would, he would tenderly, mercifully minister to them send them back to the class, and he says, one thing I was sure of when they left my office is that they would be back. And if they came in for cheating, they would probably come back for cheating. And I was like, man, what a, what a mindset to have with someone's sin. You know, and if I, what if we could embody that as parents? Not despise all of our children's failings, but actually look at it, look at it as an opportunity to minister to them? knowing they'll probably do this again and again and again, and there'll be more and more opportunities? What, what if Christ really does have that heart toward us? What if that man that I just mentioned had something of Christ's heart when he tenderly ministered to kids like that? What if Christ toward us is infinitely more merciful than that? And that he's not sick of you, but as Psalm, the psalmist says, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. I want to end with one last thing here. Um, this rooster. Because there's two ways I could have been, we could end this today. And, and, and I chose not to go one direction because it's in chapter 20. That's when Jesus comes to Peter and says, do you love me? Do you love me? Because I know you, you know I love you, you know I love you. Feed my sheep, feed my sheep. And it happens three times. And we know it happens three times. Why? Because he denied him three times. It's a powerful picture of restoring grace of Christ. But we'll leave that for chapter 20. I want to look at the rooster. You ever thought about the rooster? Of course not. Nobody, this isn't something, I haven't thought about it till this week. What's the significance of the rooster? Uh, in biblical days, roosters were common in towns and cities. The first rooster would have likely crowed about midnight. The second rooster call that you would have heard, maybe you would have heard random ones, but it was, it was known that the first one would have been midnight. The second one would have been about daybreak. And so when Mark 14.72 says, before the rooster crows twice, twice, you will deny me three times. So at one level, the rooster meant Jesus had predicted correctly that before the sun comes up, the rooster will crow a second time and you will deny me. At another level, the rooster means something more. And you could say, uh, kind of, if someone wanted to interpret this in like a sick, kind of evil way, they would say that this was, this was the PTSD of Peter because it would have haunted him. Imagine every time he heard a rooster cry, crow after this. It would have brought back his worst moment, right? You could go that way with it. I don't think that's actually 
what happens. I don't think it had that effect on Peter. Um, in, in Christianity, there's a lot of symbols. There's the dove, right? There's uh, certainly the cross. There's all these different symbols, a fish, a lamb. You know, in many churches, especially a, a lot older churches, there's a rooster. Sometimes they put it next to the cross on the steeple. Ever noticed? That's odd. How would the rooster become a symbol of Christianity if this is all negative? It, it clearly wasn't historically viewed all negative. Why? Because the rooster isn't the end of the story. The rooster crow didn't signal the end for Peter or for us. The rooster symbolized that God granted Peter true repentance after sin and that he will grant it to us. It symbolized for Christians that the darkness of night will eventually pass and a new day will arise. The rooster crowing symbolized for Christians that Christ himself was like the rooster. Um, when it says, you know those passages where it says the trumpet will sound and Christ will return? Many Christians historically have interpreted the rooster as the trumpet sound, signaling the end is coming and a new day is arising. And then in the Middle Ages, the rooster symbolized a watchfulness and a readiness for Christ's return. And so, it's really the same as last week, isn't it? God is really good at taking things that are very messed up and broken and failed and sinful and evil and working all of that mess for His glory and our good. Isn't that what Peter shows us? God is gracious. Christ is gracious. We don't just look at Peter's failure and go, man, I hope I'm not like him. We go, if I am like him, and I am, look at how gracious Christ is. He's not done with this man. He not only forgives him, he keeps using him. It's very hopeful. Guys, I hope as we go to the table, let's remember that because of what Christ accomplished on the cross right after this, all of these things are possible. Let's go prepare our hearts to come to the table. Father, Lord, you are a merciful, merciful God, and we can just say that, and sometimes we don't have anything in our mind to fill it with. It's just a phrase. But Lord, we thank you today we have a picture of Peter and this rooster and his denials and his sin. And he's us. And you forgave him. loved him and you kept using him. So Father, I pray for anyone here, Lord, who feels you're done with them. They've messed up too badly. You could never forgive them for what they've done. I pray that they would have hope right now. That because of what you did on the cross, hours after Peter's denial, forgiveness is possible. And restoration back to usefulness is possible. And so, Lord, fill our hearts with hope as we go into this week, Lord, that we could serve you and live for the glory of your Son. We pray this in Jesus' name.